Welcome to Out of the Blank. Welcome to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. Me with Mr. Steele Williams. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Can you please introduce yourself to everyone out there listening? Hey, Robbie. Hey, everyone. I'm uh, Professor Jacob Steer Williams. I teach uh, the history of medicine and public health at the College of Charleston in South Carolina. Now, where do you typically focus when it comes to teaching about medicine? So my research focus is on the 19th and on the early 20th century. Now, obviously, as a historian of medicine and public health and disease, because those topics are really wide ranging, I teach, you know, a large swath of time periods and geographies. Well, when it comes to the 19th century, where do you typically, I guess, I mean, you wrote a book about typhoid fever. Uh, I'm just curious how that struck your interest. Yeah, so, I mean, like all uh, academic scholarly interests, I think a little bit of uh, serendipity for me. So I, um, I went to, I'm from Michigan originally, and I went to Michigan State University. And while I was there as an undergraduate, I thought I was, you know, going to go into medicine or maybe into public health in some capacity. And I, I went on a study abroad to London. Uh, this was in the early 2000s, and I was a junior in college. And it was a it was for medical students. So I was working with a professor at that time and I wanted to study abroad for first year medical students. And it was like a comparative healthcare history of medicine course. And part of what we had to do every day, every week was meet up with a GP in London at a hospital and then go out into the community. And so, you know, that was a really important part for the medical students. And I was just an undergrad thinking maybe I'd go into medicine. And, and, I, and I showed up one morning at like, you know, some obscene hour, like 5 a.m. in the morning and rolled out of my rolled out of bed, made it to this hospital, and and the person I was supposed to meet today, this this general practitioner, wasn't there, and I was like, score, I'm gonna go back to bed, and then I'm gonna go hit up some museums in London, and and I'll never forget this. As I was walking out of the door, this coordinator person is like, hey, hold on a second, we got somebody that that you can just shadow today in the hospital, and so I turn around, I'm like, great. Um, and, and I kid you not, 10 minutes later, again, I'm a 20-year-old kid that's an undergrad. 20 minutes later, I'm scrubbing in for a surgery. And uh, about 15 minutes later, I, the surgeon gives this British woman an epidural. And shortly thereafter, he performs a cesarean section and delivers this baby. And I'm standing there the entire time. And he's like coaching me through how to do this procedure. And then I'm just in shock, to be honest with you. Before or after breakfast? This was, this was at, you know, seven o'clock in the morning is when this happened. So uh, I'm just in complete shock. We go back to his office and he's given me like the professorial, let's break down everything that just happened. And you tell me about it. I'm like, um, yeah, you delivered a baby. That was really gnarly. And, uh, and he's like, you're a medical student, right? And I'm like, no. So he, he assumed that I was on, he knew I was on this program. He wasn't my professor. He was just a coordinator that hooked me up to the surgeon. And they assumed I was just a medical student. So they assumed I was in this profession. I was in this guild. And, and, I, and that, that struck me from that moment 
Um, it wasn't the blood and the smells, and there were there were a lot of smells associated with uh, with that event that turned me off from from practicing medicine. But it got me really hooked into like studying medicine in, in the culture of medicine. So why is it that this British surgeon saw me and immediately just assumed that was part of this guild that then had some expert knowledge and practice to be able to be part of, you know, one of the most intimate moments for somebody that I didn't even know. The same reason we see somebody with a stethoscope and assume that they're immediately a doctor. Exactly. So, so I've basically spent the rest of my career um, going into getting a PhD and now, now teaching into studying medicine and, and studying the history of medicine to, in a way, if I really had to like dig down into like myself of selves to try to answer this question of, of why did that moment then happen to me as a 20 year old? What'd you find out? <laughs> it's complicated, right? Like anything in the past. So, you know, from the mid 19th century, you know, being being a doctor in America or in Europe was not a particularly prestigious, culturally valuable thing. I mean, most doctors, everyday general practitioners in the 19th century were, you know, were kind of busting their chops to just earn a living. And they were doing it by seeing patients every day and, and trying to prescribe and peddle medicines. And, you know, before the early 20th century, the vast majority of things that doctors were doing for patients was just alleviating everyday pain, right? They were prescribing lots of opiates. They were prescribing lots of mercury, a lot of tonics, which were just alcohols and, and infused with herbs and other sorts of botanicals. So it, it's difficult to say that before the, the widespread rise of vaccines and antibiotics, which really didn't explode until after World War II, the development of penicillin, that, that doctors had much cultural authority amongst everyday people. You know, for, for most of Western history, everyday people just treated themselves or they treated family members. You only went to see a doctor when things really escalated. And, and so the modern rise of the doctor, the figure of the doctor that, that we've sort of inherited in the 21st century is a re really recent one. And, and, and part of that, I think, and we've witnessed this during the COVID-19 pandemic, is this ambivalent role of the doctor in society is someone that that we put trust into, but we also have skepticism against. I would say a lot of that maybe because of the fact doctors don't have a lot of time to be given to individual patients. I've talked to a lot of people that talk about personalized medicine. That's 100%. It's not the doctor's fault. I mean, they're given a workload of so many different patients at once. And I mean, if you're going to back in the day, let's say if the doc, if you only went to the doctors because it was a severe issue. I mean, how many patients were they seeing on a daily basis compared to how much doctors are seeing now? People go to the emergency room over nothing. Right, that's right. So, I mean, a couple of things. So in the 19th century, doctors went to patients. Patients didn't go to doctors, which is an interesting sort of reversal of the, the common you know, way of doctoring today. And so, you know, we have, and I teach with these kind of documents, like, you know, uh, doctor's diaries and, you know, uh, letters. And so we can get a sense of like everyday practice from, from doctors in, 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 the, in the 19th century. And doctors were traveling um, either on foot in towns or on horseback. And they were traveling to see, you know, a dozen patients in a day in patients' homes. Um, and, and that didn't start to change until the late 19th century with the rise of the hospital. So the hospital was not always a place where people went to receive care. It wasn't until the very late 19th century when changes in antiseptic surgery, so surgery becoming safer, um, doctors being able to do more invasive surgeries, 
that patients started to overwhelmingly, because of some new technologies, things like the x-ray, um, began to go and in, 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 in get receive care in, in hospitals. And that just initiated just rapid changes where, you know, doctors are working in these groups and they're working for hospital administrators and they're able to see rapid fire number of patients because it really gets commercialized. When it comes to doctors making house calls, like back in the beginning, where did, did they create chart? Like how did they get a chart? How did they get any information? Did they have to do it right in the moment? But where did they keep the letters? Did they write any documentation down, put it in their briefcase, and then take a horse back to wherever they, you know, originally came from? Yeah. Um, so they were just, you know, handwriting, handwriting all of these out. And the, the very notion that the clinical experience leaves a paper trail is a relatively new one. So for example, some of the, <clears throat> the oldest hospitals in the US, there's a great book by Joel Howell, who's a professor of the history of medicine at the University of Michigan. And he has a book that is, I don't know, 15 or 20 years old now, but it's really amazing. It's called Technology in the Hospital. And in 1900 at the Mass General Hospital, just to throw out an example, ever, an average sort of incident that would have happened, a working class guy, 20 years old, comes in with a injury from a factory, let's say. Nail gun to the foot. Let's say exactly. That. Stays in the hospital for three months, right? One single page. That's his whole file. It's one page. Speed up 20 years later by 1920, a similar injury has like 15 pages of files, right? And so the notion that like the, what happens between doctor and patient leaves an archival record is itself a kind of new phenomenon. Now we do have some exceptional cases. So in, in my book, um, it's called The Filth Disease. It's on the rise of epidemiology as a kind of discipline and as a field. And, and I look at that through a study of typhoid fever. Um, and we can talk about that disease if you want yeah. in its relevance today. But in, in this book, I, I, I examined and I, and I found in the archives in Britain, this the most famous uh, sickness for this disease in modern history. And it happened to Queen Victoria, um, her son, who then became the next King of England. And he came down with typhoid fever when he was in his twenties and he was on his deathbed and he was laid up in bed, just completely sick, feverish, delirious for three months. You know, the entire British nation and news reports all around the world were daily. The front page was like the condition of the, the Prince of Wales, right? It was like celebrity gossip of the entire world. And I found the doctor that was treating him for those three months. And again, because this was a royal fair, there's a lot of you know media hype around it. And what I found was like three huge notebooks that were the daily observations from the doctor, William Gull, who's basically just like writing everything down, every temperature, you know, the, the, the countenance of his face, what they were giving him, which was like, it's like, it's so interesting, like seeing what medicine was really like in the 19th century. It's like 7am, the Prince of Wales woke up and we gave him two ounces of port. 9am, he woke up again, and we gave him a concoction of coddled eggs and arrowroot and port. Um, and they're just like feeding him like very basic diet and alcohol all day long. Now, was that the common fix for a lot of these just basic symptoms? It's kind of like uh, if you look at the old West, their tonics and stuff was like, yeah, hundred percent mercury, or they had something like red flannels, like their shirt in here, bits of shirt. It's like, hang on a second. 
Yeah, I mean, it, it. so it's interesting. So today we look back on 19th century, you know, everyday therapeutics, and it's easy to see, you know, chastise them in the past and to see the way in which they they, they surprise us because of, of, of the kind of ingredients that were being used. But if you think back to that time, right, the, the bastion of medical practice, of medical ideology in the 19th century had been inherited for centuries is without a lot of knowledge about what's happening inside of the body. Think of all the technologies that we use. If you just go to the doctor today and you're having, you know, you're having pains in the lower portion of your stomach, right? You can immediately get a series of technologies, you know, that are scans that are done that give us a picture of what's happening in your body. In the 19th century and before, doctors had no ability to do that. And so how they could gauge what was wrong with you was by what went into your body and what came out of your body and by examining the parts of your body. So whether that's if you're perspiring, if you have a fever um, and, and by talking with you, by getting you know a patient narrative and, and getting the experience, the subjective experience of that illness. And so in that respect, like, you know, my students are always like in the first few weeks of class in my history of medicine class, they're always surprised when I'm like, yeah, a normal doctor's visit in 1850 was you're sick with something, you go to see a doctor and they're going to take a pint of blood out. And then they, maybe they'll give you, you know, a, a restoring tonic that's just alcohol and some herbs in it. And they're like, why the hell would doc doctors, why the hell are you going to pay for that? Or they would, you know, they would take, take blood out. They would make you throw up. They would give you an emetic to have diarrhea. And then they would give you this alcohol-based tonic. So that all sounds like, you know, students usually like, that sounds like torture today. And, and, you know, if we really start getting into the mindset, you know, doctors didn't have, um, one, they had a complicated worldview of the body and that was seen at the time as very scientific. And two, like, it, it sort of makes good sense that when you're sick, your body is falling out of health is some kind of equilibrium it was called at that time. And then in order to restore equilibrium, you either need to take things out or put things back in. And in that sense, I think 19th century medicine, it, it makes perfect sense, even if it's not the worldview that we have today. Well, it doesn't sound stupid at all. I mean, if you're thinking about if someone has an infection with them, usually a lot of times it's like if they have an infection in their finger, I don't know how common it was just to amputate the finger to stop the infection from spreading. Or if you have someone that has uh they're sick, they have an infection inside of their body, best thing to do is make them throw up or have diarrhea to expel out whatever that is, and hopefully clear them out and start getting the right fluids in them. I mean, that's not dumb at all. I think it's Joseph Lister, if I'm not mistaken, that was the guy who kind of discovered, you know, washing off your utensils after you use them to stop blood from, you know, multiple different surgeries being contaminated. But I think his mistake was he didn't use hot water, he used just regular water. Yeah, Lister is really fascinating. So um, I've got a current project that I'm working on right now, a book project, and it's on the history of carbolic acid. And carbolic acid is super gnarly. So it um, it's a product of coal tar production. So in the in you know the heart of the industrial revolution in the north part of of England and Wales, these huge coal tar factories that are extracting coal from the ground and turning it into a, a usable product as a as a fuel source. Well, there's two byproducts to that process. One is creosote. And it was recognized already in the 1830s that you could use creosote to soak wood for shipbuilding and for railroad building. But an, another byproduct is this acid, carbolic acid. And it was first just discharged as a pollutant into the river streams. 
And carbolic acid we know today is like one of the biggest pollutants that humans have done to the entire environment. There was a study that was done in 2019 of the deepest parts of the ocean. And, they, and what, what those researchers found was a lot of human-made contaminants. And the, the single most significant one was, was the phenyl group of carbolic acid. And so it, it was a pollutant until about the 1850s when some chemists were researching like what was called putrefaction at the time. And that's just very simple, like human or animal tissue that rots and then smells and decomposes. And at that time, right, people believed that that disease was caused by bad air. So you're walking down the street, you're perfectly healthy. You walk by a sewer grate, you walk by a, a heap of garbage or a dead body, you smell that in, and that would start to impact your whole, the whole health of your system. And that could cause and lead to a disease. Well, some chemists studying the 1850s, this process and how to stop it, started to use different chemicals to see if they would stop putrefaction. And carbolic acid by the 1850s was seen as, as like this new savior for the world that you could take like decomposing, rotting human animal remains, you know, so dead bodies, or you could take stuff that you put into sewers and you could put carbolic acid to it into it and it would stop that process. So Lister, who's a Scottish surgeon in, in the 1860s in, in Glasgow, he hears that these public health authorities all around Britain are starting to put large barrels of carbolic acid, this product from coal tar production, and just dump it into sewers. And he reckons maybe that can stop infection in hospitals. So he, he invents this, um, this spraying atomizer. So he gets a medical student to like pump carbolic acid on the table in the surgical room and then soak bandages with carbolic acid. And what he finds is that it drastically reduces post-operative wound infection, we would know today. And that is true. So carbolic acid is, it kills microorganisms, but it also kills skin tissue. So there's this like de deleterious effect of using something that works. And sort of in, in this book, I'm sort of charting this environmental history and then this public health history of carbolic acid. And carbolic acid doesn't get regulated until 1900 as a, as a poison. Wait, so when they're dumping it in sewers, is that not leaking up into people's air? So their people are just breathing that in? Yeah, but it would have been by that, by the time it was coming like, so this is also, you know, it get, gets marketed as the first household disinfectant. So the first Lysol, quote unquote, is a two ounce vial that you can buy by 1860 in any corner shop of carbolic acid. So the first people that had indoor plumbing, they were told, buy this acid, dump it down your drains, and it'll stop bad smells from coming up. Now, it does stop the sewer smell and mitigates that. But it also, if it's in confined area and you just smell carbolic acid, like in a, in a beaker, it's going to irritate your lungs. And if you drink it, you die like very quickly. See, I don't look at this, like how idiotic a lot of this is. I look at this, like, it's very, very fascinating. I mean, even recently I had a guy on my show who was talking about the micro dust inside of your house that's causing particles. And they're finding correlations with that, with like pregnant women that are having kids that have cognitive issues, you know, just the micro dust and even. I think it was the longest time people used to pump gas pregnant, you know, don't do that. That's dangerous. And it's like, you're just constantly seeing the evolution and new things that we're paying attention to like, Oh, this is actually kind of bad for you. Don't do that anymore. I mean, the gut brain connection is relatively only a couple of years. I think there might have been other studies on it before that, but public known of this gut brain connection to me, it's just fascinating. I mean, I like, like I found out, I'm sure we're going to talk about this with the typhoid thing, but, uh, 
the doctors with the medical, the giant like bird masks, they had, uh, what is it? Smelling salts inside of their masks. And you're like, it's obviously they knew about smells causing, you know, can you breathe it in? Can you, so that's very, very advanced, especially for that time period where a lot of people don't even understand that. Now, a lot of people will, you know, hang around and sick people all the time and not think about getting contaminated into your nose. Right. Yeah. I think, um, you know, one of the big questions and, you know, and I try to, you know, as a historian of medicine and disease, it's it's really easy to get like lost in the quirky details. Um, those quirky details are like really interesting and amazing and the anecdotes are like super fascinating. But I try to like with my work, um, both in my research and in my teaching and in my public facing work, try to really think about what are, what's really at stake here about modernity, about, you know, its relevance to today. And so the story of carbolic acid is really interesting because it's, it's something that's a product of industrialization. So it's part of the, of the, the world becoming modern. And it does what it's, people say it's supposed to do. It stops bad smells from arising and it stops wounds from getting infected. By the 1880s, bacteriologists, who's a new group of laboratory scientists who were like, you know, culturing microorganisms and identifying the ones that are responsible for the major infectious diseases. They could grow by 1885, like a, a pure colony of like B typhosis, which is the causative organism for, for typhoid or Vibrio cholera, which is the causative organism for cholera. And you take like four drops of carbolic acid and you look at it under the microscope, the microorganisms die, right? So here's a chemical of modernity that does what it's supposed to do, great but it also kills people and it harms the environment. So, so from 1870 to 1900, there's a quadrupling of suicides in the US and in Britain and they're carbolic acid suicides. The leading cause is carbolic acid. So the story is like over and over and over again, every few months, I have about 350 of these cases um, organized for, for this book chapter. And it's like working class person, either deliberately, so suicide, the easiest way if you wanna off yourself in 1880 is to go to your cabinet and take a two ounce vial of carbolic acid and down the hatch and you're dead in a minute. Um, you know, one coroner described it like swallowing hot coals. You can't blame TikTok for that one. You can't blame TikTok for that. I immediately thought Tide Pod Challenge when you said it, I was like trying to find, you know, more common, I guess, examples to, because I, I think history repeats itself on a lot of things, but. Yeah, I mean, when did they start making that illegal to have in your home to realize the number of deaths that people could just easily commit suicide with something like that? So it takes until 1900. So Lister's 1867, when he comes out with this new antiseptic using carbolic acid in surgeries, all of these suicides, all of these harmful effects, you know, all these chemists are researching and they're like, you know, I've got this great report of this chemist in London who takes a a cadaver's hand, just like a hand from a cadaver, he dunks it in a vial of carbolic, a thing of carbolic acid, and just does this study to show like how many, uh, how many hours does it take until the hand dissolves, all the tissue dissolves. And so there's all this scientific consensus that this thing has some uses, but it's also super dangerous. And it, it takes this generation to regulate it. And that's really interesting because if you think about this, this more broadly, like think about um, to the tobacco industry in the 1950s. There's all this evidence that, that smoking tobacco is a correlation to lung cancer. 
right? But it takes all of this, like it takes a generation to, to legislate that process. Think about today where, you know, the Supreme Court in the US is ongoing trials about the opioid industry. Here's something that is a drug of modernity that does in some respects what it's supposed to do, but then it also leads to all these other effects. How do we as a modern society regulate that? So this story that I'm working on for carbolic acid is, is yet another one of these really big structural items of, of the environment and public health of what happens when some uh, uh, an object, a chemical, does what it's supposed to do, but then it has all these effects that are harmful to the public. Did you ever look at the fact that it's always the torch the field method we've always used throughout history? I mean, Agent Orange is it's basically Agent Orange as a chemical. I mean, that's Agent Orange is a chemical, but this is in like a medicine form. That's always what we've done has been if there's this thing, we can just do this by eliminating the whole thing to make sure it doesn't contaminate anything else. It's a I mean, it's effective, but I mean, you look at carbolic acid. I mean, if it's killing tissue as well, too, I mean, someone had to be smart enough to be able to point that out. And then they had to do studies on, okay, well, how do we deal with this? And now we can't use it on everything. This has to be maybe for specific cases. Yeah, that's right. And so that, you know, that to me is, you know, I think all historical research can't just be for esoteric reasons. Like, I think we, that we have a sort of like ethical, moral, even maybe, um, mission to try to like make the past relevant some way that doesn't mean that we have to instrumentalize history and just make all history to speak to today but i do think there's a kind of structure to the past and in that way i think we can actually especially for the field of public health um that we can actually learn from it today i mean i can't tell you how many people in the fall of 2020 when the covid 19 vaccine was ramping up and and then starting to you know, get distributed. And like headline news were like, the pandemic's going to be over because we have vaccines and the vaccine's coming. And as soon as the vaccine's out, people are just going to line up and cases are going to drop off the map. And that didn't happen, right? I mean, we're only at like 60 some percent of the American population that's been vaccinated. And you can go to any CVS and get vaccinated today. Um, and, you know, the reasons for that skepticism or hesitancy are historical. And, and to me, that's it. They're just, they're historical patterns. People don't just like wake up in 2020 in the fall and say, I'm not going to get vaccinated because of something today. They, they've inherited either a structure or they've inherited that skepticism from structures in the past. Was there skepticism like that during the typhoid fever? There was. So, you know, the story of typhoid. So, so typhoid is a food and waterborne disease. It's a bacteria. Um, so it's spread mostly through contaminated water. Although when the bacillus it gets infects food supplies, milk is, is probably the most predominant way or shellfish as well. You eat some bad oysters that have been tainted by some sewage and you can get it as well. Um, typhoid is, is the most virulent of the salmonella group. So everybody who you know, listens to this, this podcast has probably had about a you know, stomach illness of food poisoning. It's, typhoid fever is that, but there are 2,600 serotypes of what we call food poisoning. And typhoid fever is on the very far end of the spectrum for the most dangerous, the most lethal. Um, so it, it, it's a disease that has been with humans from, from early human settlement. All of our bioarchaeological knowledge has in genetic um, knowledge says, and it's a disease that as societies became more closely population densities that the disease thrived, particularly with societies like in the US and like Europe that developed the first water 
you know, water systems and sewage systems, which were mostly untreated at, at that time for a couple generations. So the story of typhoid is that even before there's identification of the microorganism that's responsible for it in the 18, 1882, 1884, um, two separate findings by a German and a French bacteriologist, there is a mobilization around the disease. That here's this thing that is one of the leading causes of death in Europe and in the US, and, and its epidemiology was understood before its, its, its bacteriology was. And what I mean by that is, you know, epidemiology is the study of the route and communication of a disease. So it's the population level study of how, to disease, how does a disease work from person A to person B to person C to person D? What are the chains of infection? And typhoid was a model disease in the 19th century because doctors who were interested less in the doctor-patient treating patients like we talked about earlier, became interested in populations and how do you treat populations and analyze populations. They saw in researching typhoid as a disease that could be modeled. It could, its epidemiology could be worked out. So what they would do is there would be an epidemic and in Britain, they had by the late 1850s, the first central public health office anywhere in the world. So it was a team, it was pretty small. It's like six doctors who were based out of London. Again, that's a tiny number. It grew to be about 15, 20 within 20 years by the was 1880s. That after, was that after that typhoid incident that they started adding more people to it? It was. So that that created that spurred this whole development of a public health infrastructure in Britain. And it was pretty simple. Their job was monitor epidemics happening all throughout Britain when a case of any disease rose in a particular town or area, they would send one of these epidemiologists out. They were like detectives. You learn, they literally thought of themselves as detectives too. They would go into a community where they knew no one. They would start interviewing people. They would go door to door. They were creating maps, diagrams. They were trying to figure out these chains of infection. And typhoid is a pretty interesting disease because it's not contagious person to person through like respiratory means like COVID-19, but it's a disease that requires, you know, a medium. It requires water or food. And so in that way, what these epidemiologists could do was start to impact how the disease spread in the community. And what they found was that, you know, all sorts of ways in which water becomes contaminated. You know, so you have a privy out back that, that you know, 12 houses are using, and that privy was you could excavate the drains and you could see that the drain was leaking or it was just literally going into this surface soil. And that was all just funneling right to where the well was, where the water was being tapped. And so they, what they figured out was what we today would call the ecology of disease. And they started making these arguments that like, you need to have um, a, a sewer system that works, a water system that works, indoor plumbing that doesn't contaminate surface wells. And, and, and what you need is an, a public health infrastructure, in other words. And everyday people were super resistant to that. Super resistant to that? Yeah, it costs money. Who wants to invest in, in public health? I mean, so today, like, I, I, what I keep looking around with COVID-19 and saying, and this goes back to like the dust thing you mentioned earlier and contaminants in our houses. One of the things that the COVID-19 pandemic I think has shown is that we need a radically new way of thinking about indoor air quality. And, and that's, gonna, that's gonna take like, 
infrastructure level change, right? That model for change happened in the second half of the 19th century. And, and that change at that time was waterborne diseases like typhoid, but there's a whole host of other waterborne diseases are some of the leading causes of death at that time. And scientists unraveled the ways of, that those diseases spread and what the solutions could be. And it took in some cases 50 years for that infrastructure to actually change. So that by like the 1920s, it's, it's just sort of commonplace that in the US and in Europe, there's water filtration and sewerage systems and there's, there's public buy-in for that. So you can use municipal taxes to, to create that infrastructure and pay for that infrastructure. But for the first generation, people are really were unwilling to do that. They were either the scientific evidence was put in their face and they just denied it, um, or they were unwilling to pay for it and, and, and figure out the sort of collective ways of, of getting it done. And I, and I think we face a similar problem with infrastructure today for respiratory borne diseases. Well, especially one thing I've ad advocated for since the beginning was Michael Ulsterholm saying that ventilation systems should have been a priority, um, should have been more focused on, and it wasn't focused on. I mean, you, we could sit there and spend a whole field day poking at blame of what didn't get done, but I mean, that would be hindsight. It wouldn't be right in the moment as well, too. We got to understand, you know, it, when it's new like that, everyone was new to it. That's why like pandemics have always happened and all these types of things have always happened. But we this generation, a couple generations haven't ever experienced one. So you can't really point fingers and blame stuff. A lot of this hopped onto like a social thing where everyone's blaming is this thing, is this de this Democratic Party or this Republican Party. It's just like you got to let that go. I mean, even mass became not a effective tool. It became a social construct to a point where people were saying you're a no masker, you're an and that's where we get lost. I mean, was that something similar to during Back in the day, did, were there divisions amongst people fighting each other, not only fighting each other, but fighting their institutions as well, too? Yeah, I think that's, I mean, it, it almost reads as a kind of like truism. Some of the tropes that we've seen, um, you know, rear their head in the last almost, well, almost three years now in the COVID-19 uh, pandemic is, is the kind of historical patterns, patterns of xenophobia, so what did we see in the first you know, year, especially ongoing, but in the first year of the COVID-19 pandemic in the US, we saw the rise of anti-Asian discrimination, the rise of, I mean, look at, you know, there's been some great studies on this, but um, you, know, you look at even the language that some of top level you know, politicians were using in the US to describe the origins of COVID-19, which were still pretty up in the air at that point, um, and, it's, and it's spread. And, and they were right out of the playbook of, of the hate and blame game of the past that societies have long you know, done when, when epidemics and pandemics are, are new. And I think that's, that's really what, um, where history can sort of help us. So my, um, I can't tell you, so I've been teaching history of medicine and public health and disease for 12 years in Charleston and then before that in London and then before that a little bit during my PhD in Minnesota. And so hundreds of students that I've taught over the years. And I always have this last lecture where, well, before COVID, where I just tell students, I'm like, we've just spent 14 weeks studying epidemics in the past. And here are the patterns, you know the patterns. So in your lifetime, there probably will be a pandemic. What, and my, my question is always the same as a final exam question. What do you think will happen? And Every student for 15 years wrote, it's gonna be blame, it's gonna be finger pointing, it's gonna be lack of cooperation, it's gonna be not adhering to 
um, what becomes scientific wisdom even early on about the spread of the disease. It's gonna be political bantering, all the things that we've witnessed. My students, just from a 14 week class of studying this in the past, had, could figure out and anticipate. And I've received hundreds, hundreds and hundreds of emails and letters saying like, thank you for equipping me with some of the tools with which to answer, the to, to approach and to grapple with the pandemic that we're now experiencing. And I think like, at some level, we as a society need to grapple with that, not to go back, as you say, in hindsight and like finger point, because I think that that is not helpful as a society moving forward, but to grapple with the historical lessons of what we did well and what we did really poorly, because it's COVID-19 is not going to, one is not over and two is not going to be the only Epidemic. I think most people, at least in my area, have probably forgot about it. I don't see anybody wearing masks or anything, but that was always the thing. Like there are some people, obviously people that still wear masks, but they've been back and forth, whether a mask was good, whether a mask was bad. And it's just like, I mean, at this point, it's like people got to you know, do their own decisions in their life as well, too. But to say, I mean, monkeypox is another one that was out there, which was like, is that another pandemic? And it's just like, I mean, is this going to be a common thing every 10 years we're experiencing something or every couple of years we're experiencing some new disease and no knew this i mean i'm just happy the news finally started reporting on opioid overdoses because that was getting insane i think i saw one article but now they've all blamed it on walmart and i'm like yeah but where did they get their drugs from yeah yeah that's right so you know i think you're right you bring up an interesting point so you know you look at any time in the past and you know the 19th century is, a, is, is my often frame of reference and it was you know the leading infectious diseases of of that era tuberculosis, typhoid fever, scarlet fever, whooping cough. It just reads like a who's who's list of like major infectious diseases. Was bubonic plague one of those? Plague, yeah. So plague plague was pandemic. So it, it, it erupted um, in the late 19th century. Um, in, the 18, in the 1890s, it, it erupted out of Hong Kong and it spread all, all over the world. Um, and, and yes, you can look at epidemics and pandemics and see them as these like galvanizing moments in society. And I think in some ways the you know, the study of pandemics pre presents a kind of interesting lens because um, what happens in moments of crisis in general? And, you know, I tell my students like pandemics are their own set of phenomenon in the world, but they're not that different from other types of crises like natural disasters um, or, or other sort of human disasters. So, um, frames of reference in recent history in, in the U.S., right? We think of 9-11, Hurricane Katrina. You know, we could think of a, a, a pretty short list, I think, if you thought about like what major events galvanized, at least in the U.S. To an in the extent. Last, in the would, last 25 I, years. I would raise it up there if you say natural disaster. Natural disaster, you know, is going to end. Um, the beginning of the pandemic, when people actually were caring about other individuals and saying, I'm going to go get supplies for you before it started turning on put on a mask or yelling at each other. It was because there was no end date on the pandemic. And right now, I guess, I mean, if you're still under conditions and if you still think you're going to die tomorrow about it, it's probably there is no end date yet. So that's the fear thing is that you eventually just slip back into your normal self. You get this kind of like, it's not 9-11 first month or so. I mean, you, everyone's recovering from a disaster. It's not um, me versus you. It's just we're all Americans and we're all hurting. And then after you watch a month or two in, uh, eventually people started going back to their thing and eventually it became even a sales product. They were selling 9-11 t-shirts and making money off of it. Yeah. 
And so that raises the question, which makes epidemics interesting, is if we compare them to some of these other types of crises, why didn't we see the kind of rallying nationalism that we're in this together? Politics. For COVID-19. Exactly. And so like, what is it about epidemics that that does this to our, that fractures our societies? Because it, it hasn't always. If you look at in the 1940s, the polio campaign, right? You've got FDR who has polio, who's disabled, and you've got the biggest philanthropic at that point initiative in the world with the March of Dimes to raise money for polio awareness and for the mobilization for an effective polio vaccine, which then happened. People rally communities, neighbors are helping neighbors. People are coming together to try to stamp out a deadly, dangerous, infectious disease. And so that it's hard to say that it's epidemics have always done one thing because sometimes they brought communities together and sometimes they've torn communities apart. Um, and I think that's what makes them such interesting objects of, of study. Well, isn't it similar to something like rickets as well too, when you look at something like where it's a small population that gets that amount and this is kind of like they didn't have a population range of what it was going to be. And as we know from the numbers now with COVID, it's obviously a lot of people can get COVID. I, I've got COVID, I've gotten over it. I think most people have probably gotten it and gotten over it. Um, but that's the thing though, is like people will hop on something and do, you know, raise benefits, do whatever they need until it's like a massive scale thing where everyone's kind of at risk. I mean, in the beginning of the pandemic, it was pitched like it was going to be a Thanos snap and half of your friends and family were going to be gone. And we eventually learned from that as well too. But I mean, even just proper procedures that probably weren't followed on this pandemic and I get it's new, it's different, but getting healthy, I mean, that was a wake up call for a lot of people. And that message wasn't set on the TV until 36 months in. So you get into this point of like, I mean, I, I always advocate for like, I mean, I'm a gym guy. So like, I don't even take Tylenol, but it's kind of like you have to take care of your body. And obviously not everyone's in that position as well, too. But I mean, we do have this weird industry tie with business. Um pharmaceutical companies, big pharma, for instance, that ever always gets mentioned. And I think that's what leaves a lot of people skeptical as well, too. They didn't have that back in the day. They didn't have these tight relationships with at least that people knew about. And I think that's what causes concern as well, too. Yeah. I mean, think about leading up to COVID from, from 1950 onward, what are the leading causes of death in the US? Obesity. You know, the top, yeah, heart disease and cancer. Third is, is accidents, which is mostly uh, in, in the modern US is automobile accidents, heart disease, cancer, and automobile accidents. I've talked to a cancer biologist and he's astounded by the fact that we use so much artificial sweeteners and stuff. And we know that causes cancer. Yeah. So public health is, public health is fascinating. Like the, the, the historical tenets and the philosophical tenets of public health are just like something that like, like drives all of my scholarship and my teaching, but keeps me awake at night because there's this really interesting way in which like, what is, if we really think about what is public health, like public health is the, is the study of, and then the maintenance of in a geopolitical space, usually in the confines of either a local public health agency, a, a regional public health agency, or one for an entire nation. Um, the world public health scenarios even more fraught, but let's just keep it within that of a nation, that there's some kind of a consensus that we should have people with some kind of expertise who look over the health of the population, not individuals, that's what your 
doctor can do, right? Or you can manage your own health to some extent, um, like you were saying, preventative medicine. Um, that there is some body that looks at population level health, makes recommendations and helps to make laws. And it's a, like, it's a social contract that, that individuals go into, that there's a tacit awareness that there are people who are looking over the population level health, but then we don't inherently have to agree with them. Or even if we agree or don't agree, we don't have to abide by some of those laws if we don't want to. So there's a lot of like built-in notions of trust in here. Think about like, I don't know, something that like every single day, probably you see and I see happening. You drive in any road in America and you're going to pass by somebody that's looking at their phone while they're driving. It's, and it's, it's a public health problem. And there's so much research on the way in which it is a public health problem in terms of accidents, right? Think about, um, you see it less in the US, but still in the US of smoking, right? Um, so you can't smoke in some indoor places, that's a law, um, but you could be COVID positive and go into a confined space and breathe on somebody. Again, we think about like, what is, how does that scale up between individual level behavior, law, and then public health recommendations? And it is a really fascinating um, ongoing historical and contemporary set of confusions that we frankly just haven't quite figured out. Well, I've talked to both sides of the argument. I've talked to people that are obviously anti-vax. I've talked to people in the WHO who are some are anti-vax and some are vaccine as well, too. I would boil it down to when I talk to someone about, oh, I guess, the, the medical policies and it being distributed. He said that the message just isn't getting out properly in the most effective ways. And I asked what that was. He goes, you shouldn't have your celebrities, you know, making that shouldn't be what the public listens to. And it's about restoring faith in the medical officials. And I think that's like that as well, too. But how do you get that done? I mean, how do you get people to step down from their opinions and step down from this? And as well, too, I mean, people just have a sense of distrust. And it goes back to the points I said. It takes 36 months to mention about just getting healthy. People were on lockdown, but they weren't allowed to go to church, but they were allowed to protest. I mean, you had real open questions out there where it's like, is this all for political? And that's when it boils down to the topic, is this drived in with politics? And I think a lot of it was a little bit political. People would associate if you didn't have a mask on as a Trumper or something of that sort. And it's like, you got to think of like the bigger picture and the bigger picture would be way past politics. I mean, when I come across a, a website that says, sorry, anti-vaxxers, and it's about the number of anti-vaxxer deaths. And when I look into some of those cases, they had two shots. But what did you call anti-vax and it's like either it's a, a bad headline or it's just a really really crappy way that there's someone out there that created a site that's just mocking the deaths of people and that's when you start to see the divisiveness start to happen which i'm like i, I think that's relatively new i don't know if you've seen anything in history that has ever depicted that before but i feel like with the advancements of social media and this message out there the way that things can obviously it's side choosing when you go on social media, whether it's Twitter or whether you choose to watch Fox or CNN, honestly, they're all garbage, but it's the pinning against each other. That's the biggest issue. And it's like, you start to lose that empathy or that sympathy for another person. Now it just became about preservation for oneself. Right. Yeah. I mean, there certainly are historical calories. So in, in, in the late 19th century, the group of doctors who became the first epidemiologists, who started calling themselves epidemiologists, who founded the field of epidemiology, they said a few things. They said like, 
one epidemiology is the study of the cause and the communication of disease. Great. But people have been studying like where did diseases come from and how are they communicated from, you know, the most ancient medical texts. They didn't call themselves epidemiologists, but by the late 19th century, there was a field that was growing of epidemiology. They also put forward like methods, how like any scientific field would do. How do we study epidemics in real time? And how do we study outbreaks, right? Um, they also, and this this is like really forgotten. And you know, I've, I've I've spoken to a lot of public audiences, wrote in a bunch of you know op eds in the last couple of years, reflecting on the pandemic. And even early on in the pandemic, one of the things that I recognized from the study of epidemiology is that our top level epidemiologists in the U.S. This wasn't a, alone in the U.S., but just to keep it in the U.S. perspective, fundamentally failed at what was already recognized by the late 19th century as one of the key components of epidemiology, and that is communication. You know, the study of epidemiology is not just the, the, the esoteric understanding of how a disease moves in populations, it's effectively communicating those ideas to a diverse audiences. So everyday people, to local officials, to businesses, to politicians. And, and it, it seemed to me that, that and in, in it continues to this day, that that communication piece was just really, really lacking from, from, from epidemiologists themselves and from public health officials as well. Conflicting information, um, we saw, you know, one of the things that was successful for epidemiologists in the 19th century is like grassroots communication. It was going to local town halls. It was going to local people and actually like explaining things in real time. I think social media today is, has really, um, provided a, a barrier to effective communication in public health. But, but then again, there's like, there's so many people who study health communication as a field of expertise, who are experts on ways to effectively do this, that I don't see public health, you know, people drawing on that expertise either. So yes, we have some new barriers today. Um, but if you look at like the, the run up to the, the COVID-19 vaccine, just as an example, and some of the debates around masking in the middle of 2020, there was a lot of grassroots activism that was happening, but it wasn't by public health officials who were trying to reach everyday people. It was by mostly members of the far right in, the, in this country who didn't want to see mandates. And they were rallying, they were going to local school board offices, they were mobilizing in grassroots way, right, ways, ways that historically in this country have been effective for in seeing change. And frankly, the public health community, I think, didn't jump on some of the most tried and true techniques for public health mobilization. What about the nurses that got fired for not acquiring to mandates, though? I mean, people that were, I wouldn't call those people far, right? I would just call those people making a medical. I mean, you, you have your, yeah. my whole thing is like, you have to let people have their own medical autonomy as well, too. I mean, you want to use an example of what happens when you let people make medical decisions for you. The government starts to broadband medical decisions. You have an incident like Roe v. Wade. And yeah, I would make that conclusion there because that was something that was settled for 50 something years and it just randomly comes out now. I don't consider that a conspiracy. I go, of course, it doesn't matter if you're Democrat or Republican, you're in office, you're letting people, you're starting to put your faith and that's what people do when they're scared. Beginning of the pandemic, everyone just wanted to hear, please tell me what to do. How do we stop this? How do we do whatever? And people followed those precautions, and then people started to get fed up. And I think, like, like I said, I don't poke blame a whole lot at the medical institutions. I Individuals, sure, 
But I think a lot of this is involved with politics where it shouldn't be. I think a lot of medicine is that way. I think our education system is involved in politics where it shouldn't be. I think a lot of this starts to go down into some weird areas. I mean, I think eventually politics, you look at it, it's tied in with big business at some aspects. And I go, there's things that should have been separate. And this is from straight from, like I said, I don't necessarily agree with everything that he says, but he says some good points. But Michael Osterholm says that there's this weird relationship with just industries that should be isolated in their own, but it's because of funding. It's because of case studies on COVID-19 that were funded by a Pfizer program or something like that. Pfizer asking for a patent. I'm like, these are reasonable things you can question. I've had two vaccine lawyers on my show, one that kind of had a different take than the other one, but we talked about the whole mandates issue. We talked about all this stuff too. Great points on both sides, but it's communicating. It's trying to understand everything as well too because we're seeing it from people and a lot of people aren't liking or trusting those people i mean that's why we still have hearings about fauci today and we have other hearings that are going on whether you agree with them or not and it's just like this is a really like thing we need to get separated from all of that politics stuff from all that divisiveness and i understand opinions everyone's got one and everyone has different sides of them but you shouldn't be calling each other like names on social media because you guys side differently. There should be conversations going on. I've done the conversations. I've spoken to both sides, many different people on these aspects of things, CDC, WHO, NIH, and then people on the other side as well, too. I mean, everyone's entitled to say their thoughts, and obviously you can decipher and make your own. But I mean, there, there's been an all out hate on one side. And I'm like, that's not how we got to do this, because then that's what leads people to think conspiracy and it's all rigged and it's all this you need to effectively communicate you need to talk to people like you're doing with me talking about you know history of epidemics or just your perspective on things doesn't necessarily mean i have to agree with every single thing that you say but i give you the time give you the respect and that's what our public officials should have been doing they should have been going to but i'm not blaming them as well too i get it it's that's going to be very difficult to isolate spots and go down there for conventions and stuff i mean I just think people need to understand more. And what I saw, one thing that kind of hurt my, I guess, grasp on everything was the fact that we were more, I guess, doctor calls were happening over Zoom. And it's like, we don't need that bigger separation. And I get if it's important, you got a broken arm, come in and see me. But it's that little bit like I, I just had a doctor's appointment last week I was supposed to go to and they had to reschedule because the guy was out of town and they go, we can get you in next year. I'm like, <laughs> next year, when? February 1st? <laughs> Great. Sure. Sign me up. I won't be there and I won't even remember it because I didn't write it down. And that's what you start getting out of people now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think, um, you know, vis-a-vis the pandemic, there's there's going to be so much to study. I mean, it. so breaking down a past pandemic, you know, it, it takes so much broad level thinking, structural thinking, unraveling some of those, you know, connections, whether those are financial or political connections. Sometimes we don't see those unravel for decades later, right? Through, through, through the sources. So I think, you know, whatever we think about the pandemic now is going to radically change in 10 years and in 20 years, Um, which to me is really fascinating as a historian, but it's also like, it's a little unsettling just as a human living in this right now that like, I feel very, and I'm a historian like that studies this. So, so I feel like I have a grasp on like the structures that have been, how this has been playing out um, in the last three years. But I also recognize like really acutely that like in 30 years, the way we talk about this and study this will fundamentally not be what our experience has been today. 
Like there's a disjunct that always happens. Wouldn't the procedures that we did for this pandemic was completely different from all that we've done throughout history though? What do you mean? What do you mean? When I spoke to someone who helped work on the malaria medication, I mean, we, we knew pandemics happened. We had measures in place as well too, but besides the divisiveness amongst people that I think everyone knows that happens in any basically event that we have, I mean, just proper procedures. I mean, was there full on lockdowns like they had before? It just seemed like this one, and this was entitled, it was new. And that's why we had a whole new vaccine for it as well too. But I just didn't see a lot of like effective communication. I didn't see a lot of things that normally were on top of during the AIDS pandemic and during a bunch of other stuff that went away pretty successfully. Yeah. I mean, uh, influence, I mean, the, the darling disease of, of the COVID-19 as a historic corollary was, you know, 1918, 1919 influenza. And, you know, during that pandemic crisis, there were some lockdowns, you know, one of the things, the exercises, I spent a week in my, in my history medicine class where I have my students look at, they each get like a, each group gets a city around the US and they study like what public health protocols that city did in 1918 and early 1919. And almost every city had business closures, lockdowns, and every city that had those had people that rallied against them and spoke out against the lockdowns and the mask wearing. Um, so we see some of the similar patterns, but nothing as like systematic as, as we saw during COVID-19. So yeah, I think like there's some really unprecedented things that have happened in the last couple of years. What about the financial incentive in the beginning? For, for gearing up towards a vaccine, a vaccine solution? Bef- way before the vaccines were even talked about. But when we talk about people that were put on ventilators and then people that were getting marked death as COVID that weren't marked COVID. I mean, I had $120,000 for the state of Maryland that got met. And I think that it, that is from not from, I mean, it's, yes, you could say crappy governors, I would guess, but it's also they're hurting. And it's the fact that the medical industry is, I mean, we, it's, I think we lost, I think I wouldn't say today is our lowest number. I think it was a couple of years ago. There was a giant like drop off where a bunch of generations like either retired or went on to something else, but it left the medical industry with, I mean, they're always hurting for cash and that put everyone in a really crappy spot. And some people did do that just to get more money for their hospitals. And I think that's an issue too. Like we don't have, the government funds these medical institutions, right? Well, shouldn't the government have a separate fund for it, but we still spend more in defense than it does for the medical industry. So you just get these weird aspects where it's like, you're having people make tough calls or make what people would say, that's conspiracy or that's crazy calls. And it's like, well, they're put in a position kind of where they have to. I mean, if you run a hospital, you have so many patients where it's filling up hospital beds. How are you going to do that if you have no funding to be able to run, you know, pay your doctors or do anything like this? I think that's important to bring up as well. Yeah. And that's, I think, you know, it's one of the dozens of examples where it'll be really interesting to see how that story unfolds as to what kind of documents we can access as to what was happening behind the scenes. Um, you know, I look at any any big story of like epidemics and, and, and regulation of, of public health problems in the past and see, you know, I, I was just in, in the UK last week um, for a research trip for this carbolic acid book. And 1880, as I mentioned, to 1900, there's scientists and doctors and coroners and chemists writing from all over the, the empire at that time saying, we need to regulate this. Here's the damage that it's causing. Here's the people that are committed su- committing suicide. And the prime minister, I've got this letter from the prime minister at the time of Great Britain, and he writes this memo to the board of trade. And he's like, I'm getting all these requests to regulate 
carbolic acid and schedule it as a poison, how much money are we making on this? And he just literally writes to the board of trade and is like, tell me the numbers. And the numbers are staggering. It's one of the leading exports of Britain by that time. And he's just like, it's not expedient to regulate it. People at the time couldn't see that, but now with some hindsight and understanding that it's like a hundred years of hindsight, it becomes like really useful to be able to take this like very intimate look at how decisions are made in times of, of crisis. And then also take this like really big historical top-down lens as well. I think it's never let a bad thing. I, I I'm really forgetting the phrase on it, but it's like, never let a, like any bad situation. It could be a profitable one. It's something along those aspects, which I mean, I, I it's like I said, I don't blame medical institutions for that. I think that's just getting people pushed to a position where they have to make those. And I think that boils down to, I mean, obviously we don't have all the money in the world to be able to do so, but sure as hell can fund a little bit more, maybe in certain areas. I mean, $950 million was given to Bellasio and then he just said he lost that money. And I was like, hang on a second, where's your receipts? Let me see that new jacuzzi out back. Um, but I, I think it's important. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. The other thing, you know, we talked about communication earlier and like public health communication and, you know, the historical ways in which public health is always, effective public health has always been about effective health communication. I think that's like all the examples that I, that I research and teach in the history of public health in the last 150 years in this country and in, in the world. Um, projects have only been successful when public health leaders have effectively communicated the problems and the solutions and, and worked with people and, and not, I mean, going back to your, your other point about like politics and public health, I don't know how to disentangle politics from public health. I think they're like always there, but it's real change can happen when leaders find ways to direct, directly take on the political challenges and the politicization of a problem rather than just getting enveloped in it. And I think what, we, what we've seen in the last couple of years is like our public health leaders just not getting like down to the solutions of the political entangle, disentanglement. Um, I'm going to blank on it. Oh, it's David Livermore. He's a microbiologist. He's been on the show a couple of times. His only solution to that would be to make sure you don't get all your funding from one, one institution. Because you got to do it from multiple sources, but you also, I mean, the number of kids or people out there that are researching something and they can only get an answer yes from one institution is the problem as well, too. Uh, I don't, I agree with you. I don't, I can't know how to separate the politics from the, the public health thing, but I think there's a way to communicate um, effectively, especially with a lot of these officials. But I think it's about kind of keeping that on there as well, too. I don't know how to make sure that that's on every official's mind. I mean, whether they're concerned about the problem that they have going on, but I'm sure they got a stack of papers and other things that's on their plate as well, too. I mean, pandemic wasn't easy for anybody, no matter what side you chose on it. People lost people. It's terrible. Um, and hopefully we're moving on. My question to you is, what do you think about the, the ancestral memory of this? Like people are going to remember this generations. It's a big fear with masks and kids not being able to see social things. I'm not worried about that a whole lot. What I'm worried about is the aspect of like, is this going to be something where it's like, everybody's just going to constantly have this fear of another individual. I'm sure there's people still in their homes, wiping down surfaces and doing things of that sort. Yeah, the surface thing. So the public memory is a, is a huge question. Um, so I got involved early in the pandemic, um, first as a guest and then pretty quickly as a 
as a, as a guest host with a program, a podcast called COVID calls, you come across COVID calls. So, um, it's like, it was the longest running COVID-19 podcast. Um, so the, the founder, Scott Knowles, um, were you on he, YouTube? Were you on YouTube? Yeah. yeah really? Yeah, yeah. Oh my God. I was like, cause I know a couple of things we said already. I, I can't post on YouTube now it's in their guidelines. Yep. So we were doing daily. So we were doing Monday through Friday and we were interviewing somebody about the state of the pandemic. And we were doing, you know, like you, like all sides of this pro-vaccine, anti-vaccine, let's just try to bring people together to have discussions because one, we were thinking of it as like a historical time capsule because we need, we need like an arc, a different kind of archive in the future to be able to study COVID-19. So bringing people together in a daily format over a, the long duration. So we did it every day, Monday through Friday for two years. Wait, I saw episode 383 was the one I saw. Yeah, um, but but we did in, in the run up to our last series of podcasts that was earlier this year, the very beginning of 2022, we, we asked that very question. We said like, how, how are we already starting to remember COVID-19 and misremember COVID-19 and forget about COVID-19? So all past pandemics, there's something else that happens where pretty quickly people start to forget. And you mentioned earlier that you're seeing it. I mean, I, I think anybody paying attention, if you're paying attention, knows that the pattern is that we're already stopped. We're not talking about it. I think something's going to change. Um, Scott and I were actually talking about this the other day. Um, in the run-up to the next um, American presidential election, I think is going to be the litmus test for COVID-19 and how we remember it. Because what we're going to see is whoever the leading candidates are, I, I suspect, are going to have their own version of events of the last three years. And it's going to be a direct, like, here's a, here's a, a memory of COVID-19, of the pandemic, and here's why what they did or what somebody else did wrong is going to be a political platform going forward. Now, I could be wrong, and COVID-19 is just like not on the agenda of the 2024 election, but I suspect it's going to be pretty central. And what, what it's going to be is not the actual pandemic, but it's going to be a specific kind of memory of the pandemic to then do political work. And, and, and that's really interesting because if, if our responses to pandemics are inherently political activities and disentangling them is one of the problems of effective public health solutions, then politicians using pandemics as platforms, which we've seen in the past too. We've, we've seen it like after 1918, we saw a couple presidential cycles where um, local politicians and, and national presidential politicians were just using 1918, 1919 as memories of it as political platforms. Um, is, is that, that makes it even harder to disentangle those politics if, if party platforms are built into it. So I don't have any doubt that if like, if DeSantis becomes the, the Republican nominee, he's going to have a version of what happened to, to mitigate COVID-19 or to have some economic argument that will be a, a political platform for the election. Benefits of not voting when you think everything's a deep state. You don't care who the right or left. It, it, I don't think a vote. I, that's me. I don't vote just because I, what I, my belief is that if you're going to look for corruption and you side with something, you side left or right, you're going to be less likely to look for it in your own and more happy to point it out in the other. And I think that's a really crappy way to start when you're thinking about like, I mean, even you look at Pfizer, Pfizer wanted a patent or Moderna sued Pfizer on a patent for the vaccine where you're like, if you really want to generally care about people, you wouldn't be patenting something like that, but it is money. I mean, 
it's it, it's the, it, it's communication as well too i mean if like i talk to you i get to know you i like you but then these people that are making not these people but pfizer or something like that they're going to make money over people they don't know faces they don't know and that's a hard thing to do but it's that's why it's so important about communication which is expanding that out i'm sure through all the covid calls you did you probably got to i guess learn and realize like this person's maybe not what would be hyped up on twitter as this certain person they're actually nice they're actually you know they're just curious about stuff yep i mean the other thing going forward to this like this question of memory is from a historical perspective is we i think we have to invest in some new infrastructure with air quality i mean like i was like rolling early in the pandemic when everyone was like obsessed with surface disinfection because from the jump like all the science was like this is a respiratory disease that you're going to get from someone breathing in close proximity to you i thought masks were effective and i got told multiple times by a lot of people even in the who that were like masks are not effective i'm like well it has to do something, whether you think it's like tossing sand at a chain link fence, yeah. it's, it's something right. in front of your face. Oh. It's going to block spit. Yeah. Um, but, but my point being coming into the COVID-19 pandemic, there's like been dozens of studies of what's called health literacy about like what percentage of adult Americans are, are what could be considered health literate, literate. And it's like every study comes up with a number that's like 16 to 18% of the American population. That's an adult is like literate with basic health concepts. And, and that to me suggests like a failure of, of infrastructure for teaching at a very basic and young age and sustainable about everyday health concepts. And, and maybe even if there isn't like this shrine to COVID-19 and this ongoing memorialization and this like rise of post-COVID nationalism, which I don't think will happen because we didn't see a sort of rise of nationalism moments of the pandemic, um, that we might invest in health literacy going forward. And, and I think that will actually help to prepare us for the next crisis and to address the crises that we're already dealing with, with with the pharmaceutical industry, with obesity, with like everyday choices of like, just, I have a seven-year-old and a four-year-old and everyday choices about like food and exercise, just like basic preventative, how do you keep and maintain a healthy body and how that relates to your mind and your outlook on life and your, your mental attitude, like all these things that I think are like basic that I try to teach my kids. I understand like the part of health education in the public school system is not fundamentally teaching them some of those things. Well, they took the nutrition plate thing, the little plate where they told you what you needed meats. They took all that out when I was, I think when I was leaving elementary school, I was way back in like 24, not 24, 2012, or maybe even farther than that. I graduated. No. Yeah. It was way, way farther than that. How to be, it has to be like 2006 or something like that. Cause I graduated in uh, 2015, but yeah, that's a hundred percent. Like, I mean, they just stopped teaching that. I don't know why. I mean, they don't really teach the whole puberty thing as well either. They stopped doing that. And I mean, I don't know. I think if you really get, I think maybe teaching more about infectious diseases. That's why I had a bunch of people on here talk about like infectious diseases, parasites, all this type of stuff. Cause it's stuff I want to be curious about. I mean, a lot of people will see something on the ground, pick it up and put it in their mouth. If they just dropped it or something as a five second rule, but also if someone throws something out and they, you know, there's people that eat trash. I don't know those people, but homeless people, for instance, that's a good, I'm not, wouldn't say good part, but a small portion of our population is homeless 
they're eating out of trash. I mean, how many people are getting a parasite disease from that? But nobody knows what these things are because it's not in our purview. We know what the cold is. We can take an Alka-Seltzer or whatever it is to get over the Tylenol, whatever. But they don't know about the other things that go down that they maybe not come in contact with every single day. Micro dust, for instance, is something that it's rare if you get massively sick from it, but it's around us 24-7. And even just like the, the microbiome, I mean, think about the explosion of research in the last 10 to 15 years on like what constitutes a healthy part of our, our, our own internal ecosystems. And that, that research has exploded in the last decade and it's not become like mainstream into everyday health education. NyQuil so chicken, NyQuil chicken. I'm kidding. That is the dumbest thing I've ever seen. When I saw that, I was like, what is happening right now? <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, in the, so there is a historical lesson here though. So I'm working on this, this article. It's, it's coming out in a special issue of the European Journal for the History of Medicine. And it's on the early, the first decade of the 20th century. So this is right after the, the major discoveries by bacteriologists of the cause of leading infectious diseases. So what happens when laboratory scientists could first say like, here's the cause of these diseases. It comes from this, this disease is caused by this microorganism. Scarlet fever, this, cholera, this, typhoid, this, tuberculosis, this. There's like this new kind of scientific knowledge from the laboratory. The epidemiologists can almost conclusive for bacterial borne diseases. Here's how they're spread in a community. So we have for the first time in, in like modern history, scientific evidence that bounds a disease and what it's caused by and how it's spread. What public health officials did is they went into schools and they influenced school curricula and they taught kids how germs spread and how to stay safe from germs. If you look at school curricula from 1900 to 1940, knowledge about germs is central to that health education, about infectious disease and then later about viruses after the 1930s. And then it drops off in the 1990s and in the early 2000s. We rely on a hand sanitizer that kills 99.9% .9 of those things. And then we get drug resistant TB. Dude, that's a real fear that's coming up is that penicillin resistance that nobody's talking about. I hope I've talked to a couple of people that are really focused into that, but the lack of like awareness on that is insane. Yeah. Yeah. And it's going to be like the pharmaceutical industry. There's going to be a historical reckoning. So one of the things that I always, I always tell students is like, there hasn't been a time in the last 200 years when people living at their time and place, whether you were living in 1780s or 1830s or 1920s, you thought you were the pinnacle of civilization in terms of health and science and disease. You thought you knew more than anybody before you. And today, and we suffer that same fate today. We think that like we've solved the most major medical crises. I talk to students that are you know college students and they're just like, well, we have the most advanced science of any time and period. Science is just the study of things that are the natural natural world. They're like, I was in, I'm in a biochem class or a, you know, a, a microbiology class. And we just learned the facts and the science is just the science. And I'm like, hold on a second. Like, what about all of the areas of the world that we're ignoring or we're not grappling with? And in, in 50 years or 100 years, people are going to look back in your position and say like how idiotic were people in 2022 because they were ignoring X, Y, and Z, right? And so that's the challenge of like incorporating history into real thinking is to try to see the structures from the past to try to see the world around you in a new way.
you only know what you know. Uh, but I really appreciate the time you've given me to be able to chat on my show, man. You've given me enough of your time. Um, is there a place where people can find your book? I'm sorry we didn't go super into the typhoid stuff. All good. Um, yeah, so Amazon, Filth Disease. Um, it's got a gnarly cover. It's, from it's pretty world, good. World War I. Um, uh, he was in World War One. He was a conscientious objector. And uh, he was in the trenches. And the only thing he could do to pass the time instead of fighting was to draw. And so he drew these a series of personifications of disease. And so the one that's on the cover of my book is his personification of typhoid, which is really gnarly. Well, I'm going to link all your links in the description. It's been a pleasure chatting. And thanks for listening to this episode, Out of the Blank.